0: crazy crazy and different place but it's fascinating and for us in the espionage business we used to call Moscow the the Yankee Stadium of Espionage it's like if you can in our business you're working against the best if you're working against someone who's putting amazing resources into stopping you and thwarting you and messing with you when you beat them there's nothing nothing more satisfying and so to us it's just it's just an important place for us to work welcome back
1: to the live drop Uh, my name is Mark Valley and you Probably know who my guest is. Uh, it's John Seifer. He's 28 year career of the Central Intelligence Agency's National Clandestine Service. He was a member of the CIA's Senior Intelligence Service, the leadership team that guides CIA activities globally. He was a Russian expert, Russian speaker. He served multiple overseas tours as chief of station all over the place. Um, like I said, he's a Russian expert, but he was also the um, head of the CIA's Clandestine Training School, regular lecturer, and he's the recipient of the Distinguished Career Service Medal. Um, he's also written some great stuff in The Atlantic, The New York Times. He's regularly appears on television, a lot of channels. Um, in this interview, we talk about uh, Russia, we talk about Putin's Russia, how it got that way, a little bit about chaos theory, uh, the situation in Belarus. We talk about Spycraft Entertainment, it's a new company that he started with um, film, television, and uh, literature. And lastly, he offers some advice for those transitioning from the clandestine service to public life. Begin transmission now. You had an article called "The Spurious Spies of Fiction" back in the Before Times in <laughs> February of 2020, and I found it pretty refreshing. <laughs> it, it brought up some points that, one of which was, it, it always seems like you have consultants there and they tell you exactly what the uniform's supposed to look like, what the letterhead's going to look like, but then, you know, the overall premise is just some cl- completely implausible situation <laughs> oh, is that frustrating for you to watch
0: yeah, it's funny yeah um edward lucas a guy I used to write for the economist he's a bunch of think tanks i was at a, a conference in europe and he said hey can you write something about you know hollywood and spy stuff and i said eh, right so i finally wrote it and yeah that's one of the things that's just sort of funny and i'm sure you've seen it in your work both with intelligence and military things and then with uh with hollywood too is yeah it's like they actually spend money to hire consultants so that, you know, the file numbers look right or the the color of their cap or whatever, you know, they're, they're wearing the right clothes. But then the story has nothing to do with reality. So, like, why waste your money? Like, the, in fact, the people that might see something good about, hey, that's exactly how we wear our socks or whatever it is, are not the people. Are they going to be the same people that say this has nothing to do with reality? So, I'm not sure why they feel a need to, you know, make the plant look right when the rest of it is wrong. But, you know, it
1: is yeah. what it is. Yeah, I you know, full disclosure, I've actually played the uh, director of CIA on television before <laughs> I should probably let you know that. Just want to let you know that ahead of time. But we yeah. had to do one scene, it was for a show called Crisis or something on NBC, but I had to do a scene where I was the director of CIA and I went to FBI headquarters to meet with.
0: The director of CI is not going to go to FBI headquarters. Right? That's what I, told I mean, I, didn't, I don't really know.
1: And I said, I don't know if my guy would really, you know, I think this might be like a phone call situation, you know. But the director, you know, the producer's are like, what do you want us to do? Mark, build another set? For you, you know, we, we've only got one. The show's about the FBI, so there it is. I'm sure you
0: were a fine director.
1: Oh I, yeah, I, 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 he was very uncomfortable. Let's just put it that way. He was very, <laughs> very uncomfortable. Yeah in this in this article, you also mentioned some things. You know, as part of the thriller genre, you've, you kind of feel that it's been, you know, not really given a good look. I mean are are there any are there any examples of um, any examples of like stories or films that you of spies that weren't in the in, in that genre. They weren't thrillers or they weren't action films that you remember. Well
0: obviously some of the early ones, the things that you know relate to LaCare movies or those type of things, try to get that interest in the human factor and human relationships and sort of the, the weighing of the balance of moral and ethical and and betrayal and trust and those kind of things. And and I think you know good writers, just like in good literature, uh, can really explore that. And and I think those kind of movies do well in Hollywood. It's just r- rarely do they use the espionage genre as a place to pull that out, to pull out those, ho- those sort of tensions. And I think that's actually a good place to do it because real espionage, it involves flawed individuals and it deals with trust and betrayal, ego, manipulation, vulnerability, all these type of things, all sort of in the pressure cooker of, you know, international... Intrigue or political events and things like that, and so some of those early movies, I think, did it well. And and there's a lot of movies that explore those same things, but it's just not usually in espionage.
1: You brought up something that I've been interested in in my um, kind of dilettante exploration of espionage and the history of intelligence and so forth. It's been it was the uh, the relationship between the source and handler, where you are at, in one instance. You know, there's some fear and there's some anxiety because this is this is a meeting that is fraught with danger. <laughs> I mean, mm-hmm. just by nature. Right. But on the other hand, the handler is also the only person that knows your full story. You know, sure. you've been duplicitous with everybody else, but this handler is someone who actually knows your both sides of, that's like an incredible power that a handler has. I mean, how do you, how do you sort of, how do you manage that?
0: Well, I was talking with some, some friends that, that worked for the agency for a long time. And, and they were saying the same, we were having the same discussion sort of yesterday. And that relationship with a source is probably one of the most intense human relationships you could have other than you know marriage perhaps or you know, a sexual relationship. Because the intensity of oftentimes that person is living a life and, and is is doing something that potentially threatens their family in their life that essentially they're committing treachery against their country, treason against their country. And they have a reason, a motivation for that. And it could be, you know, Hatred of the system, hatred you know of corruption in the system, hatred of the boss, you know, something that impels them to do that. And essentially, they, you know, to do it right, they can't talk to anybody about it. I've had sources, you know, that their their wives or family or kids, nobody they work with has any sense how important this part of their life is. You know, the the fulfillment they're getting out of, you know, taking it to their corrupt country. And the only person they can deal with is someone you might meet once every two months in an alley to talk things through. Is, is, is your handler. And so, those relationships can be really intense and important. And I mentioned in the article, you know, my friend Jerry, who I work with on Spycraft, he talked about one where, you know, a person from sort of a, a very radical Arab country at one point confessed to him that, you know, he, he didn't believe in God, but he couldn't tell anyone. He would get up at four and pray with his wife every day, and he'd look at her and say, you know, is she thinking the same thing i think thinking? Is she... Believe in this or not believe in, but I can't say anything because if she doesn't agree with me, then I'm in a real tough place. I can't, you know, I do it with my coworkers and I, you know, and, and so essentially they would have these deep, deep, long discussions about is there a God and what is religion and what's important and what's humanity and what's, what are morals and things, you know, in the nature of this sort of clandestine relationship in the, in the veld somewhere, passing secrets, but also discussing these things that are important to a, to the source. And so, I mean, that's part of the, you know, the game is. The people who work for you, you know, you have to really assess them. You have to build a relationship and build a relationship of trust with that person, um, and look for what it is that that makes them tick and motivates them. And then, in that same process, if you're going to solidify that relationship as an espionage relationship, you have to also train them and, and protect them and, and keep that going forever. You can't make a mistake. So every time, every time you go to a meeting, you have to realize you have to go through a process to sh- sure that 100 that you're sure there's nobody witnessing that, that no one's followed you, that you're not being looked at, that your electronics couldn't lead someone to realize you're meeting this person because essentially you have to be right every time. And, it, and the other side who might be looking to uncover this thing just has to look into it once and that person's career, life or family could be jeopardized.
1: I confessed everything to Jerry when I met him too. I told him everything. <laughs> 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 he's got, he knows he's got a lot of information right now.
0: Okay, yeah, I mean, old enough now we we forget it all anyway, so it doesn't I matter. I know, exactly. You have nothing wasn't, to worry you know, nor about. was
1: it that exciting anymore either. But, <laughs> but um you know, I was just wondering it's an i amount of pressure for some for like a young, you know, intelligence officer or I suppose, you know, an officer in the clandestine service, or I mean, what do you actually just call like a, a CIA officer? He's a case officer. Right.
0: right? Case officer generally used, yeah. He's a or case office officer. Or ops Operations officer, case 7. officer.
1: What are their resources i mean you know without kind of giving away the, how how the whole operation works i'm just wondering i mean does he, he, he obviously has a you know a boss who, who he, he goes to but i'm wondering when you run into those ethical dilemmas i mean are people kind of expected to you know just kind of solve them on their own do you have resources to go to i'm just wondering in the cia is if there's this <laughs> kind of napoleonic legal system where you just refer to old cases and you have a Rolodex. of. I mean, how do you, how do they make decisions like that? And what resources does a case yeah, offer? It's
0: interesting. I think right from the beginning, I think a lot of it has to do with the people you hired. So there's an incredible amount of effort that goes into trying to, to use resources, you know, interviews, role-playing, polygraphs and, you know, psychological tests and things to make sure you, you get people up front who you know are comfortable operating in the gray they're they're, they're comfortable sort of weighing things understand there's no there's not always one right answer and that, that they have the ability to sort of make relationships and even sort of ma- manipulate relationships to their to their benefit and then of course all the the training is exercise driven and you go through this and then you know once you get to the field it's an unusual profession because oftentimes at the end of the day it's just you when you go out and you you go three or four hours to make sure you have, like I said, no surveillance to make sure that when you meet this person, it's absolute secrecy and it's hidden. And then that person might tell you something or offer you something there where you might have to make a split second decision that impacts the future of the case, the intelligence, something that's really important. And there is no there's no one to go to. You can't jump on a phone, you can't there's nobody with you, you can't ask anybody. I Remember working with the FBI sometimes, it was always funny because. It's just different. You know, it's FBI's cops and CIA robbers, and it's just a whole different culture. In the FBI culture, when they meet with a source or when they pass money or they do anything, they have to have at least two officers, one to make sure that they, you know, they've said what the other one does. But, you know, a CIA officer, you maybe have a million dollars in a backpack out in the middle of, you know, somewhere on a mud lane somewhere passing this on, and and you have to make a decision, you know, based on what the guy tells you, whether to give it or not. And so they're given a, a tremendous amount of leeway. And so I think since you're given so much of that, yeah, you have to really be comfortable, have a good sense of judgment, um, be comfortable in your own skin, and also be, you know, if someone abuses that trust, they have to be smashed. I mean, like it has to be a system that if we're going to give that much trust to people and, and put them in these kind of situations, if anybody is seen to abuse that, it, it needs to be nipped in the bud. And so in terms of, yes, there is a process when you meet someone, you know, you, you are doing it on your own, you're all making decisions on your own, but of course, you're then coming back to the office and, and you are writing up. I mean, it's a job that's a tremendous amount of writing. You're writing up everything about the meeting and what you did and what that person said and you know, what you plan to do next time and what this might mean and what he said this, what that might mean and who his sources are and what makes them tick. And it goes back to our headquarters and the people in our office and talk all these things through. So there's, you know, there's A lot of that is happening. But at the end of the day, it's, it, you're out at the end of a long rope. It's you and the source and nobody else is there.
1: What are some of the? Actually, I wanted to throw a couple other things in there. I I was reading about Vladimir Putin. (laughs) The show that he liked was the. As a kid growing up, the Russian. Yes, I've
0: seen reference to there's some sort of Russian Russian KGB story that seventeen
1: moments of spring. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds very Russian. Yeah. It starts out like with a minute of a guy in the forest just watching like some birds fly above, you know, (laughs) and then there's another four minutes of him just walking in the forest. And then he has a bizarre meeting with an old woman in this forest for like about three minutes. You don't know what their relationship is, if she's a source or if he's going to kill her or what's going to happen, right? And then it goes into this whole like history of World War II. I mean, is this a? It's it's almost like uh, I oh I thinking, yeah, yeah, yeah 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 yeah. It's, it's just, just people
0: just sit sit around and breathe at each other for. There's just a hard. long
1: burn. A lot of shots of a guy <laughs> wearing wearing gloves, driving in a car, thinking. <laughs> you know. <laughs> and I thought, oh, this is where this is where it came from, right there. I, I like. I think sure <laughs> like to watch the rest of it. It's actually on YouTube, and there's subtitles. But is there anything? Is there anything since you've written that article that you wanted to wanted to bring up? I mean, now that you're kind of getting into production and and so forth, is there any? Is there anything? I mean, are you sort of starting to realize? Oh, wow, the pressure. This pressure to
0: entertain. That's why this is the way it is. Well, it's interesting. Just a few things we could talk about it more. I mean, you're the expert on sort on Hollywood on all facets of those kind of things. But so, you know, from us when we first came into it, we knew we had lots of sort of content and stories and farce and screw ups and things that we can talk about. But at first, when we would talk to people, oftentimes it was like we would tell stories, and we, we thought the stories were interesting and had all sorts of twists and turns, and then eventually we sort of realized at the end that people look at us with a little bit of a twist and they'd say like, well, well, who did it? And we're like, what do you mean who did it? This is, and it took a while to realize, you know, you guys in Hollywood, you know, tells everything through a character. Like you have to have character first, like, you know, in Homeland, a woman who's got mental problems and then you put her into the action or the story. So it took us a while to focus not so much on the, the story up front, but the character and how the character is explored through the story. And, you know, obviously Hollywood, yes, it's about entertainment, and and that totally makes sense. Like, you, we're not going to be able to make shows like that Russian show where you just sit and watch watch a guy walking through the forest. And of course, Hollywood now, you know, there's things that are sort of publicly important and not important. So, so every story now, you know, they'll say, "Well, hey, we'll tell a story," and they'll be like, "Well, we need that has to be a diver- that has to be more diversity. We have to have a person be this kind of person or that kind of person or this kind of sexuality." And
1: that is one thing about the Cold War. It's it was it was just a bunch of white guys learning from other white guys. You know how, how to get information from. Well, everybody. I learned
0: early on because like, you know one of my early tours was Moscow, and I did a lot of stuff on Russia things. And and uh, the agency, like all parts of American society, were were slow to understand. But eventually, it might have been one of the first places where where women came into the AMC and, and started to show that they were they were oftentimes better at these things than men is. Working in places like Russia, in other words, and even in the, in the Middle East, where it took a long time to get women case officers on on the street. I think we found out in many ways they're much better for a number of reasons. The misogyny and the sort of sexism in those cultures, like the Russians, they have no women officers that do their business, none. And we often will have, you know, very young women go out and do our most sensitive things, really, you know, important, dangerous sort of life and death things on the street oftentimes because the Russians overlook them, or they just can't believe that we would use women instead of men. We've succeeded at that for a long time. And it's awful too on the street, too. You know, in in these countries, a woman can walk down the street and not be seen in the same way as if you or I walk down a street in the Middle East, everyone's going to be like, oh, what's that person up to? Are they up to no good? Or, you know, is that person a threat? And so I think the agency came around a little bit faster in some of these other places, because, you know, women can be probably as or more effective in the espionage game than men can be.
1: So I want to talk about the Russians. Um, yeah, I like talking about the Russians. Yeah. You talk about uh, the Cheka, right? Which was this, yeah. which was Lenin's original, original group, you know, intelligence organization. And, but right off the bat, you said that they were, they weren't, you, you, you talk about Western intelligence, you know, there's collection, there's analysis, but with the, with the Russians, in the Soviets, there was a history of active measures right from the beginning, and I just wanted to know
0: where that, where the Cheka came from. <laughs> well, well, it's interesting. Like when you look back at the, the Bolshevik leaders, you know, we remember Lenin and Stalin and Trotsky. Frankly, that, that's not their real name. It's Yusuf Jugashvili and and Vladimir Ulyanov and some other. Essentially, those were cover names that they used to work underground against the Tsarist Okhrana. So the Tsarist Okhrana was a, was a very brutal and effective secret service, secret police that these guys were, the Bolsheviks were battling against and trying to hide from. And and in fact, they were quite su- successful. The Russians, even in 1903, excuse me, 1903, 1904, they had a thing called the Higher School of Maskarovka. Maskarovka is sort of, you know, trickery and hidden and, and using these things. And they even created, you remember the... Um, Protocols of, of Zion. Have you ever mm-hmm. heard of this? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a famous thing that the, the in the late, in the 1890s, the Zara chronic created this false book that was meant to be sort of the chronicles of a, of a Jewish sect that was looking to run Europe or run the world. And it, it was spread around the world and it was believed to be real. And, and to this day, groups like Hamas and these other things absolutely believe it's real. It's, a, it's sort of a Jewish plot. And so, so in many ways, the Bolsheviks, when they came into power, they were used to battling against and had learned from the, the Russian secret police. The Tsarist
1: secret police. Did the Tsarist secret, did they have a name? Oh, the Okhrana, the Okhrana. the Okhrana.
0: And so when Lenin took over 1917, the first thing he did is create, they called the Cheka, create this sort of secret service. And it was all, it was essentially the first leader, a guy named uh, Derzhinsky, Made it really clear, we are an organization of mass terror. Our, their job is to keep the leadership in power at all costs, to, in any way possible, kill off opposition inside the Soviet Union and keep their enemies at bay outside of the Soviet Union. When I talked to groups, one of the things I tried to talk about, there was an operation, a famous intelligence operation called the Trust that Dzerzhinsky and his people in the early Czech, 1917 to 1922 or three, Ran And it's actually fascinating. And, and it shows that they were doing these kind of operations that we saw in 2016 against our election from the very beginning. And so the trust is, is famous for when the Bolsheviks took over, I mean, it was a small group of people that, that took over, you know, had, when the czar was killed and took over this massive country. And there was a huge opposition of former monarchists and Red Army people and European groups, European intelligence and security services that were they were looking to overthrow the nascent you know, Bolshevik state. But what's interesting, the, the main sort of opposition group that was operating in Asia and in all throughout Europe and inside Soviet inside Russia, was this thing called the Monarchist Union of Central Russia. I think that was the name of it. And it was the main group by which anybody who wanted to overthrow the Bolshevik regime or commit assassination against Bolshevik uh, leaders you know, would, would engage with. It was an underground secret organization. Well, it turns out from the beginning, it was a trap. It was fake. Derzinski and the Cheka created the opposition organization, the underground opposition against the Bolsheviks. And they ran it for four or five years all over Europe. And they collected everybody who wanted to overthrow the regime would come and deal with this organization. And they essentially got the names and information about everybody. And they would eventually lured them all into Russia and kill them all. So they created an opposition organization so they could use to, to destroy the opposition against them. And it was it was quite, you know, it fooled essentially all of these European security and intelligence agencies at the time. So this new group that came out of nowhere and started from nothing, you know, tricked the, the British and the French and the Germans and everybody else.
1: They caught the original James Bond too.
0: Yeah, exactly. exactly. Um, yeah, that's right. Sidney Riley. There, there was a big, there used to be a show, Riley, Ace of Spies. I forget to say that he was hoodwinked and lured into Russia and assassinated. I think that was their first f- Facebook page. <laughs> that's a good point. Yeah, it's and like f- you said, one of the things that's been different from the beginning, and it's important to know when, when we deal with Russia now too, is you know, Western intelligence services, and the CIA started a little bit differently, but generally about collecting information. Now it could be through espionage, spying, could be satellites, but it's about collecting information to give to professional analysts who then put together analytic products for... Policymakers. So you're trying to provide the president and his main policymakers intelligence and information they need to make better policy. Now in Russia, they they do some of that, they run spy cases, they collect intelligence too. But a much larger amount of things that they do is this covert perception management. They call it active measures. And it involves everything from disinformation and propaganda to supporting violent groups to assassination to deception and all of these different things. It's it's active. It's trying to influence the perception or influence the enemy or keep the enemy off balance it's it, you know it's using subversion to try to cu- to keep potential enemies off balance and essentially it probably comes from the fact that you know this again the Bolshevik state was quite weak at the time and had pretty powerful enemies and you know it was almost like a terrorist group they couldn't take on the, these countries of the west but what they could do is look for their weaknesses and try to to weaken them from inside and create you know keep keep them off balance and so from the beginning, they use these these tools and they've continued to do so. And we, we found to our chagrin that you know they were quite good at it in
1: 2016. I think I saw the phrase reflexive control or something. Does that have something to do with
0: that? Yeah. So there's sort of their version of experts and academics that work on doctrine in in Russia and in the services and in, in the military services and intelligence services. Yeah, this it's a term that they use to sort of how can you influence and control the actions and thinking of the other side. How can you control perception, ma- manage the other side so that they take actions that are in your interest, but maybe not understand? So, I mean, you could you could look at, you know, the 2016 election. Some they were trying to influence the electorate to take actions that were in the interest of Russia <laughs> more than, you know, the interest of Americans. And and it's interesting that in um, General Hayden, who used to be the NSA director then the CIA director in his latest book, he talks about, in the military and NSA and in the intelligence community in the, in the nineties was a big discussion as the internet started to grow and, and, and for, you know, information became easier to access and, and you know, cyber attacks and all these things were beginning to come big discussion about how are we going to use this new landscape of, of intelligence? And there was a lot of discussion about you know, trying to take information dominance. Are we going to be able to try to control the thinking of the other side and Do these kind of things. And essentially, they decided that was just that was just that was a little bit too far. It wasn't something that the the US was necessarily going to do. We would work on being maybe the best in the world at cyber defense or, or cyber attacks, or these type of things. And we would give different pieces to different institutions and agencies like the NSA would do a piece, the military might do a piece. But the Russians, you know, early on went the other direction. They want their intelligence and security services and military to be involved in that process of influencing the, the way the other side thinks.
1: So they're, they're actively creating content.
0: <laughs> they're, they're actively creating content. They're trying to, you know, like a lot of people look back at 2016 and they saw the stuff they did in Facebook and things. There's a lot. Part of the problem is this has become so politicized in the United States. And um, it became almost like a, a, a domestic political fight instead of looking at it as a national security issue. And so a lot of people would say, you know, they say the Russians put this sort of false stuff out there and Facebook and these things, but, you know, no one was going to change my mind. I, either a Republican or a Democrat, but but what they weren't trying to, they weren't trying to change minds so much as they were trying to impel action in certain groups. So, so they know they're not going to change the mind of most people, but they do know that maybe some left wing or, or black groups who don't traditionally vote if Continue to put out messages that both sides are the same, and it's not worth voting. And uh, you know, all you're doing is supporting an inc- a corrupt structure. You'll keep a small group away from the polls. And on the other side, uh, if you can you can stoke outrage among groups that don't normally vote to actually get out and vote in an election, you can you might be able to change things because you're getting you know your side so worked up to go vote, the other side pieces of it so despondent that they don't vote. So they were trying to. You know, They're pretty savvy in the way that they
1: use those tools. I don't really know game theory, but if I had to kind of use a term, I would say, like, for game theory, you're, you're just trying to confuse the other side and you don't really have a plan. But it looks like they've attempted to call it the Gerasimov doctrine. I was looking at an article from Mama <laughs> yeah,
0: yeah, right? Yeah. General
1: Valerie Gerasimov, Gar- where.
0: Gerasimov,
1: yeah. Gerasimov, chaos is strategy. But you can't really have an end endgame. I, I, I'm not a good chess player, you know, but when I do play there's always that moment I really enjoy when I'm sitting across from somebody and I make the first like three or four moves and they're looking at me like, what is he thinking? When in reality, <laughs> I don't have a plan at all. You know, I'm going like piece to piece, but there's that key moment where they're
0: looking at me like, you know what I think, I think you've hit on, I think this is an issue and you know, I to talk about sort of academics and, and people are more expert in this, but I think that's the fundamental weakness here. I think from the beginning you know they use these tools again like I said it's like a terrorist looking for weaknesses to take advantage of it's the using it's essentially the the tools of the weak against the strong if you're dealing with a much stronger adversary you have to use these things to keep them at bay but like you said I, what's the end game so it's one thing to continually interfere and get into elections and mess with people and sort of keep them off balance and and you know try to influence certain decisions and subversion but where are you going with this how does that ultimately make Russia a wealthier, more secure, better state. Like, I, It's not clear to me. It's almost like, like you said, chess, they, it's almost like they love the complexity of the game. They love to sort of keep the, their enemies sort of off balance, but it's not clear to me that it's leading to something. Now, of course, that's, you know, we grew up in a democratic state with when a new person comes in power, you vote and the, and the old people go out. If you're a dictator, if you're in charge, essentially your goal is to stay in power every, so every day it's a challenge. So every day that you're not overthrown or someone's not trying to assassinate you or, or what have you, that's, that's a victory. And so staying in power, continuing to steal, keeping their people in power is sort of the goal, making the country healthier, making the country wealthier. Those are, those are subsidiary goals and less important. So I I tend to agree. That's the thing is, yeah, these moves are really clever and cute. Like you said, in your, in your chess analogy, but how do you win? What's the, what's the, what's the end game?
1: You had a a review of Catherine Belton's book and I want to jump a little, I want to jump to Dresden (laughs) sometime in the mid eighties where um, she brought up some new information. I mean, there were rumors that, you know, Putin was, um, I mean, there was always rumors that the East Germans had, you know, connections to the Red, red army faction that the East Germans were the ones that contacted the Libyans for the Lapel Disco bombing, and this book is the first time I've seen it where it seems like there's a little bit more of a role that the Soviets and especially Vladimir Putin may have played. And you, it's, he seems to have they just want to create instability way back, you know, way back then. I guess looking back on it, I'm not really sure what my question would be from that. Is I just thought it was pretty, pretty interesting.
0: <laughs> well, let me. I could I could riff with it a little bit. So so I mean, Putin. You know, he joined the KGB in like 1975, like you said. He grew up watching these KGB shows, and he saw that that was a way to serve the Soviet state. Then he spent his first, I don't know, nine years or so following opposition people in his hometown of Leningrad, sort of the second tier of KGB things. You know, that you know many KGB, they want to live overseas, they want to live in the West. They want to, that was sort of the, you know, where you're trying to head if you're going to be a KGB officer. And finally, he gets his first overseas, if you will, it's not really overseas, to East Germany. So in Dresden, a small smaller city, not East Berlin, but in Dresden. East Germany it's his first posting there and you know eventually after he goes president people become interested like what what was that about you know the Soviet Union essentially started to fall apart when he was there so that he eventually had to leave with his wife and go back to his home and and as the, as the country fell apart he got involved with the, the mayor of Leningrad which then became St. Petersburg but well, I think Dresden his time in Dresden is really interesting and important because that was his first time you know outside of the country he learned some German to go there. And as we look at how he became so effective and eventually becoming president, there's some connections that I think were really important. And one of the things is the, the, the KGB, as the Soviet Union started to weaken in, in the 80s, even 70s, 80s, was probably more sophisticated and saw the weaknesses of the system. And, and also, they had connections to the West that other people didn't have. So the KGB was in charge of the Communist Party's money. So the Communist Party kept money in, in Western banks. And the KGB, one of their jobs was to try to, you know, steal Western technology so that they could build their military and their their rockets and space exploration, all these type of things. And so the KGB were were very adept at smuggling, at dealing with money laundering, at dealing with these, you know, banks at having, um, you know, those type of things. And so Vladimir Putin, it turns out when he eventually came back and got into the Kremlin, he was able to use these things that the KGB had in terms of how to manage money. Essentially, they knew where the money was when the Soviet Union fell apart, and they were able to keep themselves together and have more sophistication so that as a lot of the rest of the society fell apart, the security service and KGB continued to be strong. So when Putin came into power, he sort of had this cadre of cronies and people with money and with skills and with banking skills and things that could keep him in power. But also it looks like, and one of the things Belton talks about is that Dresden was particularly important for the KGB's contact with terrorist groups. And Dresden instead of East Berlin, because in East Berlin, there was, you know, lots of Westerners and Western embassies and all these other type of things, whereas Dresden didn't have much of anybody from the West. And so it was a place where the Stasi, the East German Stasi, could manage these programs on behalf of the KGB. And so someone like Vladimir Putin would be working with the Stasi, to manage PLFP, which is the Palestinian sort of group that did terrorism, and the Badr-Meinhof gang you mentioned, and these other kind of things that, that would take action on behalf of, of the KGB through the Stasi. And so she talks to some people that suggest that, you know, that was a very, very important place for the KGB because of its relationship with the Stasi and terrorist groups, and, and it's likely that Putin was involved with in that type of activity.
1: I'm going to throw some Russian terms. I don't even know if they're accurate. But like, when did the Siloviki and the Bratva kind of come together? <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, well, is there a name for the, for like Kodorovsky or the, the, you know, that kind of wealthy, yes. the wealthy class? How did they fit into it?
0: Oligarch or something. So, yeah, I mean, that's interesting. So this this, belt, this book by Catherine Belton, I think it's called Putin's People, if, I'm, mm-hmm. if I remember correctly, talks a lot about that. So when Putin comes back from Dresden and the Soviet Union is falling apart, and there's sort of interesting stories in his, his biography about how that influenced him as he, as he moved forward. He eventually ends back in his hometown of Leningrad and uh, hooks up with one of his former law professors, who's now the mayor of Leningrad, which became St. Petersburg, to be his sort of foreign business contact. So Putin's job was to manage foreign contacts, potential investment in St. Petersburg to help get you know food sent in and t- trade for money or what have you. And at this time, it was a mess. The c- country was falling apart. You know, they didn't have you know, the system put together. And, and again, the, the two groups that seemed to, to at least have themselves together in, in, a, in a plant were, were the security services, the old KGB, and the mafia, groups that essentially organized crime groups. And so at this time, Putin ended up working with, you know, sort of the strong organized crime groups that ran the ports of Leningrad to get goods and money and, and got involved in sort of trading those things. And so when you talk about the Bratva, that's sort of a group of, you know, the, essentially a mafia, or you get organized crime group. The are, or are essentially the government people from the power ministry is the people who run the army and the security services and the intelligence services and those, those type of people. And so, you know, in modern Russia, those groups end up sort of working together. You've created a system... That, what's interesting about it is, it is it looks to the West like it's sort of Western. It has banks and it has lawyers and it has all these things, but essentially it's it's a crony capitalism, if you will, or like, or, uh, where to make money and be rich, you have to be able to do favors on behalf of sort of Putin and the people in power, and so you can get rich if you do acts for the state, even if you're a business person or what have you, and. and the Kremlin access is a place that sort of maintains who's on top and who's not between these sort of battling groups of criminals and businessmen and all these other kind of things or, and, you know, money. So, and gives them a slush fund, sort of business people have to sort of pay back to the Kremlin so the Kremlin can use sort of dirty money in the West to, to you know, corrupt leaders and, and do these kind of activities like they did with our election, for example.
1: I remember hearing at that time that there was a like, kind of an offensive, like a charm offensive by the CIA to kind of go and meet these other intelligence agents, agents or diplomats and to try to develop sources out of these out of these people. I don't know what you would call. Them. <laughs> I'm running a, a complete I'll, limb here. <laughs> <okay>. I, mean, <laughs> I think I just crossed into like. So
0: I like, keep going. I'll, I'll look at it. Like...
1: Well,
0: the one thing I can say was I was in in Russia in the in the in the nineties after. You know, I was in Finland as the Soviet Union fell, and they had the largest Soviet embassy in the world. And focusing on Russia was something that was our main task. And then eventually, I was in Russia. And as the Soviet Union fell apart, and a new Russia came together, and the economy was falling apart, it was almost a Wild West. And, and it was, you know, it was a very bad time. Russians remembered it as a bad time. But like I said, the, the the security services still held together. You know, they were still very focused on their job. They still thought they were protecting the state. you know, They just switched over pretty easily from a Soviet state to the Russian state. We never in the embassy and in, in CIA or State Department saw any diminution of security services ability to mess with us, to surveil, to follow, to bug, to question anybody we talked to, to try to run sophisticated operations and counterintelligence operations against us and stuff. And so those security services, the KGB essentially broke up in, the, in a different groups. So they KGB was a massive, you know, several hundred thousand people organization, which did internal security, counterintelligence, counterespionage, and then it had an external service. So essentially, it was the FBI, the NSA, the CIA, all put together, plus border control, all these types of things. And so they essentially broke into separate organizations. So the first chief director of the KGB became the SVR, the Foreign Intelligence Service, sort of the CIA equivalent. And the second chief director, became the FSB that essentially the FBI times times 50 that did domestic operations and things and eventually in the 90s before he becomes president putin is the head of the FSB the internal security service and so the, so the, the intelligence service continued to be quite strong uh yes after after the the wall fell you know our pol- not just the CIA but our politicians everybody tried to develop relationships with the new russia and tried to influence Russia to sort of move more towards the West. And, you know, during the Yeltsin and Clinton period, there was some of that. And I think eventually the 1998, the economy sort of fell apart in Russia. And, and for a variety of reasons, you know, essentially Putin taking over and the security services sort of taking power over, over the government, it moved in that sort of anti-Western direction after that.
1: Yeah, I talked to Russians and they said, no, we tried, we tried democracy. It didn't work. It was a mess. <laughs> but how how would you approach someone like him? How would you kind of organize that or how how would you kind of strategize that?
0: in terms of government to government, I mean I think we have part of the problem is the u s for all of its size and power and you know reach around the world, can be awful can be pretty naive about things sometimes and so we've seen it with Putin and the Russians over the last twenty years. You know, George Bush said, oh, I, I look into his soul and saw that he was someone we could work with. And then eventually when the Obama people came in, they, they said, oh, it's not working with, you know, the relationship with Russia. We're going to reset and try to increase our cooperation with the Russians. And, and President Trump comes along and he sees Russia as a natural ally and somebody we should be working with. But anybody who's been involved, lived and worked on Russia things, you know, it's the Russians that have been consistent. It's not us. Like we continue to look at them and, you know, every now and again, we're focused laser focus on terrorism, and then we pick up our head and say, oh, we should improve relations with Russia. And so if the Russians, you know, Putin probably has some right to think like, I don't understand the Americans. Sometimes they pretend like they want to be friends, and then they screw us. And then they act like they are interested in our opinion, and they do things in the international sphere that are totally against our interests. And so there's a sense of betrayal on his part of, of you know, from the West and, and you know, lack of consistency. And so you know, he he's come to a place where essentially it's a anything that hurts the United States is good for Russia and, and, and vice versa. So it's a zero sum game for him. And so I think if we as approach Putin now, again, it's not another one of these efforts to try to befriend and say, Oh, we have all these natural things we should be working on. It needs to be more practical. It needs to acknowledge areas where we fundamentally disagree and areas where they, they understand that, you know, we have different opinions. We have to understand that some of his natural Attacks against us in the West. Some of them, he truly believes things that we can't understand why he believes. And some of them are for internal consumption. He needs, you know, he he has a country where the economy is going going to hell. He needs to blame somebody. He needs to blame foreigners. He needs to say this is because the Americans. It's because the Americans sanctions. The Americans are they're looking to overthrow us. You know, there's been we saw this in Libya and Egypt and all these places. They're trying. You know, they they pretend like they're your friend and then they they want to overthrow the. The government and stuff and so he can tell his people that we're a threat and it allows him you know to stay in power so I, I think you're not going to change him he's he's essentially running a, a dictatorship sort of a, a group of cronies that he keeps rich in power and he's sort of stuck with that he probably would like even if it's not a friendly relationship with the West one that's a little bit more stable you know as much as he probably likes having Trump in power, he has no idea what, what decisions are gonna be made from one day to the next, and that's something he has to deal with. And so yeah, I I don't know that there's a, a great easy answer to improving the relationship with the Russians in the New York. So th- There's not there's not there's not a lot we need from the Russians. It isn't like there's sort of this view, especially on the right, that well, oh, they're natural allies. We should be working with them. You know, they both they don't like radical Islamic terrorism either. And and that's yeah. true, but we're their main enemy. So Whereas, yes, we have some things we agree on on terrorism things. At the end of the day, if they take an action that can hurt us, they will they will do it.
1: It's funny. I had um. I'm going to throw in like a kind of reductionist metaphor here. <laughs> <That's a> metaphor. <laughs> head I in. yeah. Sorry to hear about your, your dog passing away, by the way, <laughs> yeah, oh, you know, um, it she hit my, boy. my dog passed away too. And oh, I'm yeah, sorry. it hit me, but there's a, I, I had this funny experience with my dog. He, um, I, he was a rescue and he, he used to bite people, you know, mm-hmm. and he would bite people. And I was always thinking, what am I doing wrong? what am I, what am I doing wrong? Am I, am I feeding him at the wrong time? Am I acting the wrong way? And you know, then he bites somebody else. And I, I think <laughs> what, what the heck am I doing wrong? And I went, you know, I went to a dog uh, counselor or whatever, like a behaviorist, yeah. I guess, here in South LA. And he said, L- look, um, uh, this dog has got wolf DNA in it. Right. <laughs> he goes, yeah, he what, bites. You, what you need to do is to put a muzzle on on this dog, you know, yeah. and and when you walk him, make sure you well, he walks behind you, so he knows that you're in charge, and then he'll relax and everything will be fine. So it was the funniest thing. Like I would walk around with a dog with a muzzle, and I would get it was interesting to get get different reactions from people. And this has something to do with the whole reset idea, I think, you know, because oh, some good, people, good. some people would look at this muzzle and they look at me and they think like. What did you do to that dog? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you know? yeah. And other people who got it, they would look at me and they'd just be like, oh, you got a biter, don't you? I was like, yeah. yeah. You know, yeah. So there was like two different attitudes of is this, that's just his nature or is it something that I can do to affect this situation? Strangely enough, I'm going to throw this in. It, was, it, it almost fell on like liberal conservative sides. Like my okay. more liberal that's friends, good. my more liberal friends thought that it was, what did you do? What did you do wrong to make that dog like that? Or what are you doing? They would almost overestimate my ability to affect his behavior. <laughs> but some people who you know either from where I'm from in upstate New York, they would just be like, "Yeah, he bites, huh? Yeah, got to muzzle him up." But um, <laughs> yeah, Putin as a dog who
0: bites—I I actually like that. That's actually, and it does fit with. And so there's often an American tendency, and there is a little there is a little bit of a right-left thing on this, until Trump. Trump's a different, but is that because the relationship with Putin is going poorly or because the Russians don't seem to understand us or because they're upset that we're, you know, in the Balkans or whatever we're doing, there's a tendency, well, this must be our fault. We must not be... Communi- there are natural ways we should be working together. They should understand these things. It's probably our fault. We, we need to communicate better. And so there's often this desire to, to sort of try to fix it by taking some action on our own we, rather than just saying, he's a biter. He's not, you know. We have to accommodate what he is and think about what our how our policies fit with the biter, as opposed to saying, like you did, ah, oh, I must be doing something. Let's try, uh, you know, maybe if I pet him more, he'll won't bite anymore. And and so this has always been an issue with the Americans. We we send we tend to compact that, that thing. Yeah. It's funny that you it because I got a I got a dog in, in Moscow, a bull terrier, and uh, it was a great dog, but the Russians are scared to death of it because they thought you know they were because a lot of people that organized crime, people would buy them and make them, you know, vicious. And Guard dogs. So I bought the dog there. They had this huge, they call called Petitchny the pet places It's like eight football fields wide of uh, every kind of pet you can imagine. Everything from bears to piranha fish to to maggots to cats, dogs, tigers. It was unbelievable. It was, it was always fun to go just because it was this crazy assault on your senses. And I ended up getting a dog there. You know what's funny? Because now Putin now is is pretty savvy. So he understand they for years have been collecting and focused on on the United States, and they they understand how our different parties and people and and communities look at Russia. And so they they've actually gotten pretty savvy. So they understand that the sort of right wing groups that support that support Trump. Now that Trump has said that Russia is a natural friend, they've been pushing out a narrative that sort of fits with with the right wing. They're trying to you know gain people in the United States that think Russia is a natural ally. So, so it started with, we both have a reason to dislike Islamic terrorism. Therefore, there's a natural area we should work together. But then it morphed into appealing to Christian groups that, hey, Russia is a Christian country. Russia is a white country. Russia doesn't like immigrants. Russia, you know, Russia doesn't like gays. And then even like, you remember when that Maria Butina came to the United States and dealt with, was engaging with the NRA and working with the NRA, eventually arrested you know, trying to get into our groups that were sort of gun enthusiasts and the NRA. And so they're putting out a narrative to a group of Americans to say, oh, my God, the Russians are natural allies. President Trump is right. We These are white Christian, you know, anti-immigrant, anti-gay gun lovers. They should be the people that we are associated with. If you know Russia, those things don't make any sense. They, they aren't a gun com- country. They're Christian, but they're Orthodox Christian. So essentially, if you're Catholic or whatever, you're, you're shit out of luck. Yes, uh, you know they don't like immigrants and they don't like gays. But I mean, there's a lot of problems in Russian society that these same groups that, that think they're our natural allies, if they lived there, they would have a different opinion, I'm sure.
1: Oh, yeah. They like to think that the Tsar the was the, the last Holy Roman Empire of, of the Eastern Orthodox. Yeah. Right, so they're yeah. starting to play that the whole Third thing Rome. up. Third Rome. No, I'm not buying it. <laughs> you, uh, <yeah. laughs> you said, uh, but I wanted to bring something else up. When I listen to epidemiologists talk about um, COVID, they almost seem like they're fascinated with this virus, like the things it can do and the way it surprises them with, and it's horrifying to listen to because you think, wait, this is, and then they get a hold of their senses and they come back and they say, it's terrible what this thing is doing. We need to mask up into all this stuff. But I'm just wondering if there's some sort of expert bias because I've heard people talk about Soviet Union and and Russia and they, they have like a real kind of, when, I guess when you kind of like some, when you like something a lot, essentially, you know, and it just seems almost sentimental, you know? And Mm -hmm. uh, um, I was just wondering, you, you don't seem like that. At all, and is there is there a reason for that? You know, often all about Russia, but you don't seem to have been drawn into the.
0: Well, I do. I, I really care. I loved Russia. I thought it was fascinating. I mean, it, living there was was hard, but it, you know, it was an assault on the senses. It was like I used people used to ask me after I left, "What was it like?" And I said, "It's sort of like being a heroin addict. Like it's addictive, but you know, it's bad for you too. Like it's it's just a crazy, crazy and different place, but it's fascinating. And for us in the espionage business." You used to call Moscow the the Yankee Stadium of espionage. It's like if you can in our business, you're working against the best. If you're working against someone who's putting amazing resources into stopping you and thwarting you and messing with you, when you beat them, there's nothing nothing more satisfying. And so to us, it's just it's just an important place for us to work. And there's interesting. There's people who have approached Russia academics, and there's a very difference, and you see it. Like for example, in the U.S. Embassy, if you talk to the Americans who're there or or people. There's almost two different kind of groups that approach Russia. And there's the people who came at Russia through literature. They went to college and they studied, you know, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky and everybody. And, they, and there's this sort of, you know, richness of Russian culture and music and literature and theater and, and there's sort of this, you know, they've always suffered and, they're, and you know, there are they're good people who have been invaded and suffered. And so, and then there's people who, who came academically into Russia through studying history and politics. And, you know, you just realize, you know, how bloody and brutal and awful, and they, they've been governed for centuries and czarists. And, you know, it's a constant sort of game. It almost depends on which way you came in terms of how you view Russia. One is much more sympathetic. You still might see the problems and understand what's going on. But, and then there's one that are sort of like, here's what we're dealing with, and it's not a good thing. But I think both sides... You know, really are interested in and care for Russia. It's like you know the people who follow the Middle East or China or something. There's a, you know there's a long, long group of U.S. diplomats and academics and, and, and intelligence officers who've been focused on Russia for for decades and are fascinated with it. And so I don't I don't dislike Russian people. I, I dislike the Russian system. In fact, you know most Russians you know that you deal with are incredibly well educated, very interesting, very sort of worldly nowadays. And, you know, one of the things that you, they used to say is that we just want to be a regular country. Like, we don't want to be the villain. We don't want to be everybody's enemy. We don't want to be like, it's sort of a constant, constant problem. That, you know, they're either trying to mess with the West or overtake the West or overtake this kind of, like, I think it wears on the population over time. And, you know, they're supportive, they love their country, but it's, you know, if it could be less stressful, it would probably be a good thing.
1: I guess the last questions I want to get at is, um, you know, maybe a little bit about spycraft. I mean, why get into, why get into that? Are these your, why not, you know, go into, you know, consulting or, or, or something like that? Why are you getting into the entertainment business?
0: Well, first of all, a lot of, you know, a lot of people, when they leave the agency, they, we say going from blue badge to green badge, it's like you go, you immediately become, Contractor, And so, you know, you quit on a Friday, you come back in Monday, you now you got a pension, but you got still have your clearance. um, I didn't really want to do that. A lot of my sort of friends and mentors had moved on and gone into business and things. And so I just assumed that, you know, there was something healthy about just sort of cutting it off and doing something different. And I did for a few years, I was doing consulting, I worked for Stan McChrystal's company that was working with a lot of private companies and Working with them on sort of leadership issues and stuff. Didn't really like it. I missed some of the sort of content, politics, foreign affairs type of things. And then when my um, Spycraft Entertainment colleague, Jerry O'Shea, retired a couple years later. He was the, the chief of station in Berlin, his last job. You know, He's such a great storyteller. And, and I had just recently from some weird connection. I was sitting at home one day and I get a phone call and then I said, hello. And they said, John, this is Rob Reiner. And I'm like, Rob Reiner? Like, oh my God. I remember you from all in the family. And we started chatting and and he was, you know, when as Trump was getting elected was, you know, he's very liberal, very angry about Trump. And he wanted to record sort of a session with me and General Hayden to talk about Russia and Russian things. I really enjoyed it. It was fun to do that and meet him and And so when Jerry came out, we started chatting and talking about sort of our stories and things. And I had just had this thing with Rob Reiner and I'm like, well, let's let's see if we can go out and build the brand to have enough success so that we're sort of the go-to place for spy stories so that we can pulse our network of people in former CIA officers, former British, Israeli, even Russian that can help support stories, but also, yeah, try to, you know, push content. We've done a number of, you know, options and books to try to see if we can't get them made into film. Of course, Everything now is backed up because of COVID. So when it's, it's nice to have all these sort of projects going, but if there's no production, yeah. who knows what that lineup is like once they start opening things up?
1: Yeah, you wrote uh, a good intelligence officer is comfortable with ambiguity. Has that kind of paid off? <laughs>
0: <laughs> but the good intelligence officer needs money to live on too. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and that's and one thing about there. how I've learned. I mean, you know this. It's, it's it's you know Hollywood knows how to take advantage of people too. But it's sort of to get anything done takes forever and. money doesn't come until something gets made later down the, so you can go years with talking things through and writing things and doing these things before anything comes out of it. Luckily we had a little bit of investment so we can at least eat in the meantime.
1: Well, that's awesome. I, I think it's fantastic. I mean, just having met you guys, it's just an amazing amount of institutional knowledge there and experience. And um, it, it also adds a lot of credibility. I mean, a lot of times you you would work with who said they were in the
0: CIA.
1: <laughs> You're <laughs> well, never quite sure. You're never quite sure.
0: It's weird. Well, first of all, it is against the law to impersonate a military officer. It's not against the law to impersonate a CIA officer. And so it's there's a lot of interesting stories about people who essentially built careers pretending to be CIA or former CIA officers.
1: Any advice for someone looking at your personal transition from the clandestine service to public life?
0: There's a lot there. It is harder than leaving the military or some of these other things because nobody understands it. Everybody, CIA or espionage or intelligence means all kinds of different things, to all kinds of different people. And it depends what they saw on TV or what they think. So in terms of like finding jobs and things, Everyone will talk to you because you, you know, they think it's interesting. But in terms of knowing what skill you have that could translate into another job or something, it's hard because we're not good at, at sort of articulating what it is that our weird job and our skills could translate into business or these other kind of things. Mm-hmm. CIA officers end up in all kinds of weird, you know, they be, they run alpaca farms and they some make movies and some become criminals. I don't know
1: make movies. I can't wait to see them. <laughs> All right, here we go. The the 15, The Fast 15. I tried a dirty dozen but Fast 15. I had to go with 15 for you. I couldn't settle down for. It. So, yeah. um, Jason Bourne or Jack Ryan? Jason Bourne. Lacare or Ben McIntyre?
0: I love both of them, but Lacare.
1: Covert or clandestine? Clandestine. Stones or Beatles? Stones. DGSE or GCHQ? GCHQ. Surveillance or counter-surveillance?
0: Surveillance. Counter-surveillance. Counter-surveillance is for... Uh, we can have that discussion later. It's for... Okay. Yes. <laughs> <somebody laughs> else. Crunchy or smooth? Crunchy, for sure.
1: Gordievsky or Tolkachev?
0: <sighs> Tolkachev.
1: I knew you were going to say that. Truth or dare? Dare. Uh, pace or mice?
0: You know, I, I've heard people say that pace is like our way of saying whatever, whatever, whatever. And I know it's in my art. They talk about him in articles and you see them in things where people will say in espionage for communication they use the acronym whatever and i don't think we ever actually did but yeah mice i'll say
1: okay black bag (laughs) or burn bag
0: (laughs) you can only get in trouble with a burn bag by not shredding the stuff so i said black bag
1: okay facts or feelings facts matrokin files or stasi files
0: wow um matrokin files but stasi files is an interesting thing too
1: Okay, the last one is drum roll: live drop or dead drop?
0: <laughs> live
1: drop. <laughs> really? I yeah. thought, I, thought you'd, I paid you for a dead drop guy. I don't know. I want to do this one thing where I say, John, thanks for, very much for being on the live drop.
0: And then what do I say?
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, you say you don't have to say anything.
0: <laughs> just,
1: just don't say anything. Yeah.
0: Well, I can say thank you. Okay.